When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Mail checks, invoices, documents, and everything you need to keep your business running. Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Make the same no-brainer decisions as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Election College, Episode 168, Frederick Douglass, Part 2. Let's throw a political party. Face it, the political scene sucks, but did it always? It's time for Election College, and class is in session. Now, your hosts, Jason Goff and Ben Smith. Hey, Ben, this week we've been talking about Frederick Douglass, and we left off last episode with how the fight for freedom for African Americans began to be tied together with the right for women to be able to vote and have rights as citizens as well. One thing as I was researching this, and Ben, I think you came across this too, was just how stern Frederick Douglass looks in pictures (laughs) that are taken of him. And that was intentional. I mean, he wasn't an angry person, if anything. Uh, Frederick Douglass, in my mind, exemplifies what a Christian would be like. And uh, again, I, I just feel like his life is so convicting because he overcame odds all throughout his life. And he didn't just whine or gripe about his station in life. He did something about it. And so when you see photographs of Frederick Douglass, which he is probably one of the most, if not the most photographed American of the 19th century, he doesn't smile. And the reason he doesn't smile is because he didn't want to play into that caricature of a happy slave. And he looked right into the camera uh, with this stern look. I don't know. I, I I don't know how he stood so boldly, but he did. I guess he must have figured he had nothing to lose, and he had God on his side. Yeah, that's definitely a motivating factor for him. And as we can read, uh, Douglas gets exposed to a ton of different religious sermons up through his upbringing. And we talked about how he uh, had listened to Sophia Auld read the Bible. He even taught other slaves to read by reading the Bible. And he converts to Christianity. He becomes a pastor later in his life. And it becomes a huge motivating factor for him. I mean, it's it's an entire part of his life uh, and really influences a lot of the things he says and does. And you can imagine that if you are of the opinion that God created us all and created us equal, it's even though our founders did it, it's pretty difficult then to believe that someone should be able to own another person. So, you know, during during his visits to the UK uh, in 1846 through 1848, Douglas meets with a bunch of different British Christians and says, hey, could you make sure that you never support any of these American churches that permit slavery. 
Um, and, you know, of course, they're, they're happy to do that. But uh, he's basically saying, like, Christianity and slavery cannot go together. And it becomes a platform for him to, to stand on in order to help accomplish a goal he already had. Yeah, in a seething letter, um, albeit I say seething, and sometimes you can say, well, there might be some irrational, emotional uh, words that could be expressed in a seething letter, but uh, this letter is actually very logical and laid out, well, dare I say, perfectly. He writes a letter to Thomas Ald, who used to own him, and he addresses the issue of uh, all not allowing many members of his family to not be able to read. He says, quote, your wickedness and cruelty committed in this respect on your fellow creatures are greater than all the stripes you have laid on my back or theirs. It is an outrage upon the soul, a war upon the immortal spirit. And for one, you must give an account at the bar of our common father and creator. So all of this that we've been discussing has been taking place before the time of the Civil War. And even before the Civil War, as we've mentioned again several times, Douglas is one of the most famous black men in the country. And, you know, he goes around, he speaks, he is free, he has overcome a lot of things, and he is also in favor of women's rights, which is incredible for a black man to be concerned about women's rights at the time because black men don't have their own rights. So, uh, you know, it seems like there'd be a better idea to be self-serving, but he was very much of the opinion that if women don't have rights, no one should have rights. And so he actually is a proponent that if this civil war is going to happen and part of it is to help end slavery... Uh, we African-Americans should be allowed to fight for our freedom. And he publishes that view in uh, his newspaper and also, you know, giving several speeches about that. And he says, hey, uh, the first battle of Bull Run, there were already some black guys in there. They were in the Confederate ranks. And then a couple later, a couple, and then a couple weeks later, he's like, um, these guys had their muskets on their shoulders and bullets in their pockets. So he gets a party with uh, President Abraham Lincoln in 1863 and says, how are we going to treat these black soldiers? Because we pretty much know that they're slaves and we need to make sure that we're not um, destroying them. We're not killing them for something that they're being forced to do. So as most of us know, Lincoln was more in favor of not having slavery expand in his bid for president back in 1860. And as Ben said, Douglas does have an audience with the president uh, during his first term. And by the time 1864 uh, rolls around, Douglas does not support Lincoln for president. He actually puts his um, endorsement behind John C. Fremont. And the reason being was because Lincoln did not publicly endorsed suffrage for black freedmen. And Douglas was of the opinion that since African-American men were fighting for the Union, that they deserved the right to vote. So after the Emancipation Proclamation, the North, of course, was no longer obliged to return slaves back to their owners in the South. And Douglas makes plans with Lincoln 
during this um, second term, this albeit very short term, uh, he makes plans with Lincoln to move liberated slaves out of the South. And so Douglas helps the Union by serving as a recruiter for the 54th Massachusetts Infantry Regiment. And his eldest son, Charles Douglas, joins the 54th Massachusetts Regiment, and Lewis Douglas, another one of his sons, fought at the Battle of Fort Wagner, and then the third son, Frederick Douglas Jr., also served as a recruiter. So they were pretty involved uh, in the Civil War themselves. Uh, So after the Civil War is over and Lincoln dies, the ratification of the 13th Amendment outlaws slavery, which is a great step forward. The 14th Amendment uh, makes it so that black men can be citizens and have equal protection under the law, which is a huge step forward. And then the 15th Amendment protects all citizens from being discriminated against voting because of their race, which, of course, again, is a huge step forward. We're still not done. I mean, we've still got a long way to go, but we're getting there. And on April 14th, 1876, Douglas actually gives the keynote address at the Emancipation Memorial in Lincoln Park in Washington. And he pretty much at this point talks about Franklin and just kind of speaks frankly on him. He talks about things he thinks are positive about Lincoln, which is, of course, something you'd want to do at an event like this. And he talks about how things he thought were negative about Lincoln. And he calls him the white man's president. And he doesn't love the fact that Lincoln was late in joining the cause of emancipation. And, well, he really, you know, like Jason said, didn't support that it go away, just that it didn't keep spreading. So uh, the the crowd actually gives Douglas a standing ovation. And even Lincoln's widow, Mary Todd Lincoln, which we've talked about quite a bit, gives... Uh, Douglas, Lincoln's favorite walking stick, in appreciation for this. And uh, that'd be difficult, (laughs) kind of. I mean, I think everybody kind of saw the good and bad he was talking about. But uh, for Lincoln's wife to say, hey, that speech you just gave where you did kind of criticize my husband who's dead now, um, I thought it was pretty good. That was a good speech. Yeah. Kind of interesting about that memorial, Ben. Um, Uh It's still there. In Lincoln Park in, in Washington, the Emancipation Memorial. It was actually called the Lincoln Memorial until the Lincoln Memorial uh, yeah. was built. But it shows uh, Lincoln standing up, and then there's a slave uh, or an African American um, kind of kneeling before him. And the funds that were raised for that memorial uh, were raised by African Americans, but in recent years, it has been perceived to be racist because it's showing an African-American being subservient to a white man. Kind of interesting. It's still there, and uh, you can visit it. But after uh, the Civil War, uh, Douglas uh, really goes to bat for not only African-Americans. He is very much continuing his efforts for the equal rights for women. And... He does get a couple of appointments, um, one being uh, the president of the Reconstruction Era Freedmen Savings Bank, and he also um, served um, as a U.S. representative uh, for the Dominican Republic, but he resigned that uh, after some disagreements with uh, 
the U.S. government policy. Uh, kind of interesting about the United States and the relations, or should I say the colonialization of some of uh, uh, the Caribbean uh, islands at one time, believe it or not, the United States actually thought about setting up the Dominican Republic, uh, Haiti, I guess you could say Hispaniola, as being areas that African Americans could move to and set up their own government, almost like a black state. I'm sure that probably had something to do with Douglas's disagreement with U.S. policy. Yeah, I'd say so. While Douglas is doing these things, there's a lot of insurgency arising in the South after the war, and you start getting these secret vigilante groups such as the Ku Klux Klan, and there are lots of others as well, but this you know, becomes the one that has the most uh, attraction to it. And you know, things, could, uh, things could take different forms. There was one that well, called themselves, quote, the military arm of the Democratic Party, end quote. And um, they would make sure to get rid of Republican office holders and disrupt elections that were happening. And... There was a, a point where Democrats took over the political power in every state that had been part of the Confederacy, and they wanted to make sure that white supremacy reigned high. And they basically said, well, we'll do this by violence, and we'll do it by segregation, and we'll make sure that we disenfranchise these African Americans and uh, put laws into place because we are you know, in charge of the government at this point in this area, and we'll make sure uh, that they can't do anything just because of the laws we put in place. And so because of these things happening, Douglas says, well, I'm going to throw my support behind Ulysses S. Grant in 1868 and make sure that you know the, the pro-black man president or candidate for president becomes the president. Yeah, so U.S. Grant very much stands up to the Klan. He even suspends habeas corpus in South Carolina. He sends troops uh, to many of the southern states. Uh, over 5,000 people were arrested uh, from these groups like the Klan. And Douglas writes of Grant that African Americans will, quote, ever cherish a grateful remembrance of his name, fame, and great services. So you have a big fan of Grant and Frederick Douglass. Just a couple of years later, in 1872, we all remember this because you are astute election college listeners, Douglas is the vice presidential nominee under Victoria Woodall for the Equal Rights Party ticket. And guess what? He didn't realize this. <laughs> he didn't campaign uh, for vice president. He never acknowledged that he had, but that's... Well, that's how he can have an excuse to cover Frederick Douglass in election college, right? <laughs> but he does serve as a presidential elector at large for the state of New York. And in 1872, he did take the state's votes to Washington. We've talked a lot about Douglass's accomplishments and things like that, but we didn't mention too much of his family life, a little bit. He has five children uh, with Anna. They are Rosetta, Lewis Henry, Frederick Jr., Charles Raymond, and Annie Douglas, who passed away uh, when she was uh, about 10 years old. And Charles and Rosetta actually helped 
Frederick publishes newspapers and produce them. And Anna, his wife, is a huge supporter of Frederick and still supports his work and him as a an individual, even though he had some uh, relationships, some scandals, some affairs with a few women that he was professionally involved with. And uh, after Anna dies in 1882... Douglas marries a couple years later Helen Pitts, who is a white feminist from New York, and uh, she's actually the daughter of an abolitionist colleague and friend of Frederick Douglass. So uh, that, you have to imagine, is incredibly scandalous because it is, even though uh, it's technically free, it's still the 1880s and a white woman marrying a black man is almost, I think you could say, unheard of. Not only that, but Pitts is also nearly 20 years younger than Douglas, and her family disowns her, stops speaking to her. Uh, His children say, you know what? We don't like this. Uh, It's kind of disrespectful to our mother. And Douglas is like, you know what? The first marriage I had was the same color as my mother. The second marriage I have is the same color as my father. And basically, he's like, get over it. So uh, Frederick Douglass, even though he did a lot of great stuff, wasn't without faults and wasn't without controversy. Um, but I, I, for one, think it's pretty cool that he married a white woman yeah. in the 1880s and was like, I don't care what y'all say. I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, really, the last part of his life, he... Um does run into some financial trouble um, because, as we all know, in the 1870s, there was an economic crisis. And uh, during this time, the Freedman Savings Bank went bankrupt. And his newspaper, uh, his actually his final newspaper, The New Era, uh, it failed. Uh, Rutherford B. Hayes uh, was elected president around this time and appointed Douglas as U.S. Marshal for the District of Columbia. And that helped pay the bills. Also, uh, interesting to note that in 1877, Douglas visits Thomas Ald, his former owner, and Ald was on his deathbed, and believe it or not, the two men reconciled. Uh, What happened was Amanda Ald, who was um, Thomas's daughter, she requested the meeting, and she was at one of Douglas's speeches, and she was cheering him on. So Thomas Ald complimented his daughter for reaching out to him, and this helps Douglas get some closure to, well, to a very rough, rough beginning as a slave. In 1881, Douglas publishes the final edition of his autobiography. Uh, I think this was about the fourth edition that he had published. And uh, he also gets another political appointment as the recorder of deeds for D.C. And uh, he continues going around and doing his speaking engagements and traveling. Uh, He not only does that in the United States, he's also going abroad and going crazy places. He takes Helen, his new wife, to England, Ireland, France, Italy, Egypt, and Greece in a matter of just a year or two. And, you know, he becomes 
known around the world, not only in uh, in America and, and a little bit of Europe, but are just around the world. And at the 1888 Republican National Convention, he becomes the first African-American to receive a vote to be the president of the United States in a major party's roll call votes. And uh, that's quite the accomplishment alone. Uh, he, you know, of course, didn't run and didn't win, but he still got got a vote. And uh, that's substantial. It's a substantial move forward. Yeah. And even later on, he is appointed to several positions, uh, notably a minister resident uh, to the Republic of Haiti. And um, in 1892, um, up in Baltimore, he um, constructs rental housing for African-Americans, which is still there. It's called Douglas Place. And in 2003, it was listed on the National Register of Historic Places. In February of 1895, after giving a rousing speech at the National Council of Women in Washington, he dies of a massive heart attack or a stroke. They they don't know which, but uh, he does pass away in February of 1895. His funeral was held at the Metro African Methodist Episcopal Church. And it was there where he gave um, many lectures, uh, including his last major speech called The Lesson of the Hour. And he is buried in Rochester, New York, where he lived for 25 years. And uh, he's his body is at Mount Hope Cemetery. And um, both of his wives are interred there as well, as well as Susan B. Anthony. You can imagine that Frederick Douglass's legacy goes on and on and on and the amount of things uh, he was involved in the amount of things that are named after him he's just a very was a very prolific man and, and had a lot of writings and things like that and so he's definitely a household name uh, or at least should be at this point in history just because of all the the things he overcame and the things that uh, he helped promote for others uh, in the similar situations as him. You can find him, of course, in a number of different um, representations across all sorts of arts and uh, movies and plays and things like that, uh, novels. If you, if you haven't read about Frederick Douglass and you want to know more than what we've discussed, because of course we can't talk about everything about the man, uh, you really should check out some other stuff. And uh you know, a quick Google search will will show you a lot of things, even uh, to, to explore a little further. So, what an amazing man! Yeah, uh, one other little tidbit of trivia, which I think is fascinating, and I don't recall hearing about this, but just this past October, uh, two thousand sixteen, uh, the Council of the District of Columbia voted that should DC become a state, the DC would no longer be District of Columbia; it would stand for Douglas Commonwealth. Fascinating little bit of that recent trivia there for you. Yeah. Hey, if you're interested in helping support the podcast, there is an opportunity now to support us on Patreon. You can head over to electioncollege.com slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. When you head over there, you can find out how you can help support the podcast and keep great content coming in your podcast feed. And of course, we love it when you leave us a review. It doesn't take long at all. And we would love to see like five stars and maybe a really nice review. I mean, that's not a whole lot to ask, right? I, ho- I hope it's not. Uh, you can do that by going to electioncollege.com slash iTunes or slash review, whatever 
float your boat more. Uh, it really does help us out, and we really do appreciate that. And as Jason always says, we do the happy dance. Yeah, exactly. And don't forget, you can interact with us each and every day over on one of our social media sites at Election College on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next time. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.